Let me first of all say that this is my favorite place to be, my favorite day of the week. Sunday morning, I wake up with an excitement because I get to be with all of you, my church family. And so this morning, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that I'm here. Uh, we certainly uh, miss uh, Pastor Joe, Pastor Shea. I love those men deeply, but thankful that they get a little break, uh, time with their family. I've been praying for them uh, all this week. And so if you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And while you're opening up your Bible, I'll just make a few inter- introductory comments. I was saved in my junior high years, and one of the defining features of my conversion was an immediate reverence and absolute belief in the Bible. Uh, That has continued uh, throughout my life. However, early on in my Christian life, I often wondered why I loved the Bible, trusted the Bible, hungered for the Bible, and those seemingly much smarter than me did not. In fact, I was reflecting on this. I remember in high school, uh, after I was saved and had this love for the Word of God, I would put Bible verses up in my locker room, and I had a kid next to me who was a straight-A student, and he would always... uh, make fun of me uh, about my Bible verses and why I would do that. And then I remember in college, uh, I had a a close friend who went on a mission trip uh, with me. Uh, he came from a, a very solid Christian family, had heard all of the evidence, only to inform me shortly after college that he believed uh, that the Bible was a human book full of errors And he subsequently walked away from the Christian faith altogether. Then in my working career, I've noticed the same thing. I remember a few years ago uh, when I sold my medical device company to a private equity group that was made up of several men that had MBAs and one with a PhD in economics. Uh, I'll never forget... uh, when they first walked into my office at work, and they were obviously very attracted to the business because it was successful, but on my wall in front of my desk was a very large uh, scripture Bible verse. It was Matthew 6.24, which says that you can't serve God in money. And directly behind my desk was Deuteronomy 8.18, which says that it's God who gives you the power to get wealth and not to forget him and then surrounding my desk were all these bibles on display and i kid you not they didn't know what to do with me uh, but basically their assessment of me personally was that i was a moron a bible freak and ultimately they didn't want me in their business because they didn't want a guy who thought that you can't serve God and wealth. And so I concluded early on that by the normal means of human insight and human understanding, 
I could not have come to this confidence in Scripture. That the only way I could come to this confidence in Scripture is because God had given it to me as a gift. That God in His sovereignty had given me the will to believe the gospel, to believe in Christ, and to embrace the authenticity, authority, and veracity of Scripture. Unbelievers cannot accept legitimate proof because they are blind to it. Uh, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Only as the Holy Spirit does his regenerating work, as he opens the mind, tears off the scales of blindness, gives light, implants the understanding of God's revelation, only then do people believe that the Bible is the word of God and trust it. I know the Bible is true because the Spirit of God has convinced me of it. Confidence in Scripture begins with the work of the Spirit. I believe the Bible was written by the God of the universe to receive, to reveal himself to humanity. I believe the Bible is the only authoritative and absolute reliable revelation from God with regard to the origin of man his deliverance, his salvation, the moral and spiritual standards he is to live by, and his ultimate destiny. I also believe that the Bible is true in every detail, even to the very words in the original manuscripts. God was the author. But all of this, because the Spirit has led me to this supportable confidence, Confident trust in the word of God in the scripture is then not the result of rational arguments in the work of human intellect and reason or emotion. It is the work of the spirit in the heart. Our confidence in the word of God comes from the spirit of God. It is a component of the sovereign gift of regeneration. Uh, traditional approaches have been to try to prove the Bible to uh, unregenerate people by amassing all kinds of evidence that they can process through their fallen intellects, uh, through the futility of their mental function and the ignorance that is in them, in the darkness of their heart and mind. And I have to tell you, we can amass all the prophetic evidences, scientific evidence, uh, miraculous evidence, historical, archaeological evidence, the evidence of transformed lives. And in the end, while certainly all of those are reasonable and a true representation of Scripture, they cannot take the scales off the blind eyes. They cannot give life to the dead soul. The Scripture tells us how this works in one of the great texts in Scripture. With that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 18, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 5. And it says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, 
In the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Uh, the theme of this section, starting in chapter 118 through the remainder, remainder of chapter 2 is divine wisdom. The word wise or wisdom appears 20 times contrasted with foolishness or folly, which appears about a half dozen times. This is about divine wisdom. And the whole section explains why people reject the wisdom of God and while other people accept the wisdom of God, why some reject the scripture, the gospel, the cross, and other people accept the scripture, the gospel, and the cross. In fact, there are some phrases here, the wisdom of God, the word of the cross, and even the testimony of God. But whether you're talking about the wisdom of God, the word of the cross, or the testimony of God, you're talking about divine revelation. This is the theme. Now, the simple way to break this up is to break it into two sections, and that's what we're going to do very briefly. We're not going to do a deep dive. It's a long uh, section of Scripture, but it breaks into two sections. Section number one, why non-Christians reject the gospel, the Bible, and Christ. Section two, why Christians accept the gospel, the Bible, and embrace Jesus Christ as the supreme treasure, as Pastor Shea mentioned last week. Why non-Christians reject the Bible and why Christians accept the Bible. And I will tell you at the outset, nothing is said about evidences. 
Nothing is said about human reason. Nothing is said about how to manipulate people's will or how to move their emotions. This is not about evidences. This is not about reason. This is not about emotion. Listen, this is about condition. This is about the condition of a non-Christian and the condition of a Christian. Let's look first of all at why non-Christians do not believe the Bible. And I'm going to give you five reasons which are laid out for us in this text. First of all, the message of the gospel is unreasonable to the non-Christian. That's the first cause for them to disbelieve. It's unreasonable. Look with me at verse 18. For the word of the cross, or uh, the testimony of God, uh, that is to say the revelation of God in Scripture, it says, is to those who are perishing, that's their condition, is what? Folly. Foolishness. It's foolish. In a somewhat sarcastic way, that idea is repeated in verse 21. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message. Verse 23 says the Gentiles, to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. And then another sarcastic way in verse 25, the foolishness of God is actually wiser than men. And so clearly, there is an idea that the revelation of God in Scripture is foolish. It is the word for moron, moronic, stupid, pointless, uh, unsuitable to human reason. That's what that word means. Uh, they treat the word of God with contempt and disdain. And I won't go into all the details about that, but a crucified God was ridiculous to the Gentiles. And equally, if not more ridiculous to the Jews, salvation by faith in a crucified God was even more ridiculous. The whole thing was frankly unreasonable. Secondly, non-Christians do not believe the Bible not only because the message is unreasonable, but because understanding the gospel for them is impossible. Impossible. It just doesn't make sense to those who are perishing. Verse 19, look at it with me. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In the fall... God cast the human race into a condition in which it is impossible by human wisdom to come to know God. You can't get there on your own. And God designed it that way. I will destroy the, the wisdom of the wise. He says, I'm going to destroy the cleverness of the clever. I will turn the wisdom of this world into the direction of folly. I will do it because it pleases me that no man, no matter how worldly wise, can through that worldly wisdom come to know me. In verse 9, he's quoting from Isaiah 29, 14. Uh, and we won't have time to go there. But Isaiah had said at that time, Isaiah 29, that when Sennacherib was threatening Judah, threatening to attack and, and pillage and plunder Judah, Isaiah said, deliverance is going to come from God, but it will come, but it will not come by the 
wisdom of the leaders. It will not come by the wisdom of the sages. Their cunning uh, secretive treachery that was being laid against Judah would perish not by human ingenuity, but because of the power of God. That's the context. God would step in and deliver his people. The wisdom of the wise couldn't save them. The cleverness of the clever couldn't do it. Only God could do it. And as if to say, so where is the wise man when you need him? Where's the scribe? Uh, Where's the debater of the age? Let's line them all up. The, The literate, the elite, the intellectuals, the philosophers. And by the way, verse 20 alludes to both uh, Isaiah 19 and Isaiah 33:18, and the supposed wise counselors of Egypt who were turned into absolute fools in the 19th chapter of Isaiah. Where are they? Uh, and when the scribes of the Assyrians who were all ready to record the, the records of the spoils that they were going to get when they came in and they were going to plunder Judah, all of a sudden they looked like fools because God intervened. Where are the disputers? Where's the debaters, uh, the philosophy debaters? Uh, Line them all up. And it pleases God by means of their intellects and their wisdom and their education that they cannot come to know him. In the wisdom of God, God made it impossible for men and women to come to know him on their own. You can't get to a confidence in the word of God, a belief in the message of the word of the cross, the word of divine testimony. So people don't believe because it's foolish and because it's unattainable. Thirdly, verse 22, look at it with me. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Thirdly, they don't believe because it's ridiculous. The Jews seek for signs, the Greek for wisdom. Uh, The Jews were looking for signs, and you say, well, wait a minute, Dave, weren't there a lot of signs? Didn't Jesus give them signs and signs and signs? And yeah, but they wanted the big one. They wanted the big one. And what was the big one? Knock off the Romans, set up the kingdom, reign in fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. And when he started talking about his death, and then he went to the cross, it was over, right? Crucifixion came to the Lord Jesus Christ because he condemned their hypocritical religion, because he didn't display the power against the Romans and fulfill all their own messianic schemes right? And even on the cross, they said, why don't you come down? And maybe there was a last hope that he would do that, that that would be the sign they were looking for. But the crucified God, uh, the crucifixion of the Messiah by the Romans, unthinkable. On the other hand, uh, the Greeks, it says they seek for wisdom. And what does that mean? Well, they sought the intricate, complicated, profound, complex philosophers with fancy words and esoteric concepts. And they laughed at the simplicity of the gospel and the unthinkable idea that a crucified God would be to worship. 
And I, I'm going to throw up there for you. That's why to this day there's a stone in Rome, very famous, that shows a man bowing down to a donkey. And it's a reflection of an ancient view of Christianity that says Aleximos worships his God. And the interesting thing about it is there's a donkey on the cross. Who would worship a donkey on a cross? It's frankly unbelievable. Number four, its people are unremarkable. Its people are unremarkable. Uh, the Jews wanted a sign. The Greeks wanted wisdom. Paul preached Christ crucified. The Jews stumbled over it. The Gentiles thought it was foolish. Verse 26. Look at it with me. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Bottom line, we're not too impressive. They weren't then, we aren't now. The majority of believers have been, through church history, unremarkable. They've always been unimpressive to the world, especially to the world of elite minds who treat us with contempt. Look, we're not the smartest and we're not the noblest. In fact, verse 27, it says this, right? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. You know, Paul just keeps getting lower and lower and lower. He chose not the wise. He chose not the noble. He chose not the intellectual elite, not the mighty, not the great, uh, the influ influential, the movers, the shakers, the powerful, not the noble. Noble, it's uh, actually the Greek word that means uh, well-born, high-born, socially ranked. It says he chose the foolish, weak, base, the, the, the no-bursts, the nobodies, the no-names, the insignificant, the despised. And again, he, he keeps getting lower and lower and lower until he gets to the very low. I want you to, to, to see this again. The end of verse 28. Look at it. Even things that are not. What is that? That Redemption Hill is a way to describe the non-existent ones. That, by the way, that last statement that Paul uses, the things that are not in verse 28, is the most contemptible expression in the Greek language to demean another person, to treat them as if they didn't even exist. And maybe this morning that's how you feel. In the eyes of the world, you feel like you're so insignificant, you don't even exist. And the fact that we are such an unremarkable lot adds to their resistance. And fifthly, not only are the people 
of this book unremarkable, but Paul says the preachers are not impressive. Let's look at chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And that was a problem. Because they loved the esoteric kind of cool, complicated, slick talking, kind of slick teaching that brought all kinds of complexity and profundity and stimulated their minds. They loved that. And Paul says, I I showed up. I didn't come with superiority of speech, no tricks of wisdom. I I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There again is this repulsive, unbelievable, simplistic message. Furthermore, Paul didn't help his cause by his own persona. Uh, And you remember the Corinthians said about his person, he was frankly contemptible, and his speech was unimpressive. Uh, He was with you. uh, Paul says, I was with you in in weakness and fear and much trembling. Uh, my, My message, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, it says. So you have a pretty comprehensive look at why People don't believe. They can't escape being in the flesh. And the one who has his mind set on the flesh um, cannot know the things of the Spirit. They are unknowable to him. And you add the fact that um, the message itself is offensive, unreasonable, unbelievable, incomprehensible. The people are lowly. The preachers were the weak and unimpressive and the fearful and trembling. And you add the fallen condition, natural darkness, satanic blinding and divine judgment. And non-believers cannot on their own come to believe the truth. So the search for, for God, the search for Christ and the search for the truth and the search to discern whether the Bible is really true and what it's saying cannot begin and end with human reason. Fallen minds can't get there on their own. That's why non-Christians can't believe the Bible. Now let's ask the second question. Why do Christians believe the Bible? And we're going to jump into chapter 2. And again, we won't have time to to do a deep dive in this, but it's laid out uh, very well for us. In spite of all this, go down to to verse 6. Verse 6, look at that first word, yet. Yet, that's a key word there. You ought to circle it or underline it, whatever you want to do. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. That word, um, impart wisdom to the mature, uh, the other word for that, it would be complete. What is that? Complete. It's just a way to describe believers. We speak wisdom, understood, comprehended, embraced, and believed among those who have been made complete. We have come to Christ 
we have come to the one Paul says in Colossians, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It isn't that we're more intelligent. It isn't that we've been subjected to greater evidences. It is that we have been made complete in him. And I will tell you that my life is exhibit A. My life is exhibit A. And and I say this not because I'm trying to self-deprecate or have false humility, but the reality of my life is I am very unremarkable. Frankly, I'm not great at anything. And you know what? I've come in my life to see that as a blessing. I've never been the smartest, never been the most athletic, never been gifted really at anything. And again, I'll say that as uh, trying to self-deprecate. I'm saying that's been a blessing in my life, and I'll tell you why. Because I've seen God do some unbelievable things in my life and through my life, and it's been a blessing that I've never had to wonder Was I the cause or was God the cause? Was I responsible for what just happened or was that God? And this is who God uses. It's all who God has always used. Those who are complete in him. And being made complete or mature in him, you've been given the divine work of regeneration, conversion, and transformation Not only confidence in Jesus Christ and the confidence in the true and living God, but confidence in the word of God. And verse 6 says, we do speak wisdom. We do speak among those who are mature of wisdom. However, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. This is a wisdom that I've just been telling you is unknown to the best minds in the world. The greatest of the world's leaders. We impart, verse 7... God's wisdom, he says, in secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God, listen, this is important, decreed before the ages for our glory. How did we get to know this? Why do I understand the Bible? I'll tell you. Because what? Look at again uh, verse 7. Which God what? Which God what? Decreed, predestined before the ages for our glory. Why do I believe the Bible? Because God predestined me, decreed that I understand it for my own future glory. Oh, Dave, do you believe in predestination look i believe in the bible and the bible tells me that the reason i understand the wisdom of god is because god predestined me to eternal glory and through regeneration and conversion gave me faith in his son in the gospel and in his word does that mean now i'm in a situation where i believe the bible even though it's not reasonable oh no Oh, no. Everything is reasonable. Its prophecies are fulfilled. Its miracles are true and attested to. It is scientifically flawless and accurate. 
its history and archaeology is verifiable down to the smallest detail. But it's not that that convinces my natural mind or natural reason. It is that because God has given me faith in his word that I now see it to be true. I believe the Bible because God gave me confidence in the word of God as a part of my salvation and regeneration. I stay with the truth. I believe the truth. I embrace the truth. I continue with the truth. I stay involved in the truth because the Spirit of God has shown me the truth and I know a lie when I see it. That is just a profound subject to understand. When you were saved, you came to confidence in the Word of God and that's where you stay. That's where you stay. And the people who hang around for a while and they go away give evidence to the fact that they never really belonged and they never had the Spirit of God. I believe the Bible gave me the gift of faith in His Son and faith in His Gospel and faith in His Word. I believe the Bible for my sanctification because the Spirit of God who abides in me continues to lead me in truth and away from error. That's why I believe the Bible. Now I understand verse 6 says, that this is different than the wisdom of the age, the wisdom of the rulers, the, the top minds. And all of it is being rendered ineffective, impotent. All of it leads nowhere. All of it's foolish. But I believe and you believe because God decreed before the ages that we should believe unto glory. And we believe a wisdom, verse 8 says, which none of the rulers of this age understand, none of them. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, and they wouldn't continue to reject the Lord of glory who was crucified. He sums it up in verse 9 saying this. Look at it with me. Chapter 2, verse 9. But as is written that no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We know all that God has for us. We know it. We know it by divine revelation. It can't be known by any other way. Eye can't see it. Ear can't hear it. The mind which is in view of the heart can't conceive it. God's truth regarding salvation, God's truth regarding spiritual and eternal life is unheard, unseen, unthought. It can't be known by rationalism. It can't be known by divine revelation. In John 8, Jesus said this, and we don't have time to go there. He's talking to the Pharisees. Jesus said to them in verse 42, John 8, if God were your father, you would love me. Wow. But since God's not your father, you don't love me. For I proceeded forth and come from God. Uh, I'm not even come on my own initiative, but he has sent me. Listen to this. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? Why don't people understand? It's because you can't hear my word because you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He, it's, uh, it goes on to say he was a murderer from the beginning does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. You can't. And he sums it up, verse 46 of John 8. If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? Why don't people believe the truth? He who is of God, it says, hears the words of God. For this reason, you don't hear them because you are not of God. Pretty clear, isn't it? Who believes the Bible? Those who are God's. It is a divine work. Go back to chapter, uh, we'll go back to, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll wrap this up. Verse 10 says this. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. These things, what do you mean? The things that God has prepared for those who love Him. The things concerning salvation, spiritual and eternal life, the kingdom. That is to say, all the wisdom of God, all the wisdom of the cross, all the wisdom of God's testimony, all the truth that is in Scripture. To us, God revealed it through the Spirit. And this is the critical thing to understand. We believe because God chose, God predestined us to know so that one day we would come to eternal glory. And drawing this to some kind of a conclusion that will grip your soul, let's just take that idea that God chose us, chose to show us, to reveal to us, to regenerate us, to give us life, to take the scales of blindness off our eyes, to awaken our hearts, to unfold the mystery, to reveal the truth that was once hidden from us. All of that, verse 24, back to chapter 1, to those who are called, the called. Anytime you see that term, the called or the calling, in the epistles of the New Testament is the effectual call of salvation. We are the called that is called out of darkness into light, called out of death into life. Verse 26, he says it again, consider your calling. Verse 28, God chose. Uh, verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ. I'm just going through that quickly so that you'll see this is repeated over and over. Why are you in Christ Jesus? Here's what I want to get you to. Why are you in Christ Jesus? Not because you saw how clearly it should be apprehended or believed, because you went through its evidences, because your a mind ascended to it. You are in Christ Jesus by His doing. His doing. He predestined. He revealed it because He chose. And when He chose, He called. And as Paul says in Romans 8, whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorifies. So back to verse 30. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, you believe. By his doing, you embrace the word of God in your justification, in your sanctification. By his doing, you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God. And lastly, why did God do it this way? All of that to get you to this question. Why did God do it this way? Look at verse 29. 
chapter 1, verse 29. So that no human being, what? So that no human being might, what? Why did God do this? So that no one can boast in the presence of God. Let, and then down to the verse 31. So that what? As it is written, what? That the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so we are stunned by the confidence that we have in the word of God. And when somebody says, where in the world did this come from? Where did the confidence in your God and, and the God of the Bible come from? You can say, it is by his doing because he placed us in Christ and Christ became to us the wisdom of God. And it is our love for God through Christ that gives us confidence in his word and we believe the truth because we are of God. It's that simple. I didn't invent this. All of those people in my life that I made reference to were reading the same Bible I'm reading, the same one you're reading. You believe the Bible. You believe the light of its glorious truths. And when he gave you Christ, he gave you in Christ his wisdom, for in him are hidden all the treasures of divine wisdom. In the last verse of chapter 2, verse 16, the last statement, the last statement this morning, I'll give you, we have the mind of Christ. What a statement. What a statement. And having the confidence in the word of God, we have access to the mind of Christ. Do you get that? It's no mystery to me how God thinks or what he desires. All that God wants me to know, he, he's put right here all that god wants you to know is right here we have the mind of christ i understand it all because he enabled me to understand it and i live my life embracing the wonder of such profound inexplicable grace on my behalf is this and yours You understand that at the cross, there's no boasting. You say, this doesn't seem fair. Uh, I just want to encourage you. You don't want fair. Uh, you don't want fair. Because if God were fair, and God is just, and he doesn't overlook our sins, he poured out our sin on Christ so that he's just and the justifier but we live in divine grace and so i'll close in prayer but i just want to close with these two things number one if you feel like this morning you're the nobody the non-existent one you're the most unremarkable person be thankful for that because that's exactly who god can use and most often saves. 
Secondly, this morning, if you're here and there's boasting in your heart spiritually, that somehow you've attained anything spiritually on your own, you need to repent of that. Because all that we have is what God has given us, and it's by divine grace. You did not attain to your knowledge in spiritual life through your effort or means. Certainly God honors hard work and all of that, but the reality is all of it is a divine gift. So let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you. I praise you that you have turned the, the folly of the world on its head and that you chose to reveal yourself to the not many wise and not many powerful, not many noble, but for your glory, you so often choose the nobodies, the insignificance, so that you would receive all the glory. And there is no boasting at the cross. All of our self-effort, all of our pride is just sin. Your plan is amazing. We also thank you for the reminder this morning that we're never going to manipulate someone into the truth through our fancy talk or even evidence or reason and all those things are true. But it's never going to be about that. It's going to be about preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May we use the Apostle Paul who stumbled into Corinth, weak, contemptible, and he says, I just preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified, knowing that it was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, but yet to those who were being saved, it was the power of God. And may that be the example that we follow here at Redemption Hill Bible Church, that we preach Christ crucified, and it's not that we think we can manipulate people's uh, wills or knowledge or evidence or reason with them, but it would just simply be a demonstration of the power of God working through the Word of God preached here every Sunday morning through small groups, through one-on-one -on -one discipleship. It would always be Christ crucified, Christ crucified in the power of God working through the Word of God so that there's no boasting here. There is none. And again, we pray that we would, you would, we would be faithful to that and remember that even in a fresh way this morning. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.